0: Welcome to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Life Self Mastery, and I'm excited to have Lisa Nestor, who's a fintech expert and chief strategy officer at ATM. ADM is a financial platform and digital wallet that provides various financial services, particularly in the realm of digital currency and P2P transactions. ADM has successfully facilitated over 26 million transactions and expanded commercial access to international businesses. Lisa Adana, MBA from UCLA. Welcome to the show, Lisa.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's exciting
0: to be here. Awesome. So, you know, uh, could, could we share a bit of your background? You spent a bit of your time in in, in Chennai and other, other countries. Uh, and mm-hmm. how did it lead to your current role at ATM?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's definitely been a windy road. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm a North Carolina girl. I spent my whole life in North Carolina. And then my first job out of North Carolina was a Peace Corps volunteer. Um, I worked as a small business development volunteer and a place not that many people know, Mauritania, which is in Northwest Africa. And they posted me in a real rural village. And um, that was a, a really informative experience for me, but also professionally opened me up to um, the field of, I will say, um, well, really the field of finance. I had never um, kind of dove deeply into finance at that point. And Um, In the Peace Corps, uh, essentially the project that I ended up working on was supporting a rotating savings and lending association in the village. Um, After talking to people, realized there was no bank or financial services there. And what people were really interested in was access to credit um, and then even the ability to save more safely. So, worked on that project, um, which then uh, led me to moving to India. As you mentioned, I worked at Um, the Institute for Financial Management and Research in India for three years, uh, helping to lead uh, on-the-ground field studies, looking at various financial services, things like microcredit, um, rainfall insurance for farmers, like kind of innovative, bottom-of-the-pyramid financial services. And that was a hugely amazing experience as well. But just to summarize, it was all very low-tech. I was a very low tech type of person. Um, Eventually, I decided to go to business school, did that, and then discovered this world of fintech, which um, I didn't know anything about, but really kind of piqued my curiosity. And um, for me, when I was in that village in Mauritania, the big epiphany I had was the power of infrastructure to really connect people to economies and kind of like let them participate and help themselves. I saw a lot of not great things in terms of financial aid disbursement and like these types of things. So I loved it, Um, graduated my MBA program, worked at a a kind of traditional FinTech company for a year and then was introduced by a professor at UCLA to the Stellar Development Foundation and Jed McCaleb. Um, Stellar Development Foundation supports the Stellar blockchain. It's a pretty well-known blockchain that focuses on fast payments and global financial infrastructure. I was there for five and a half years, which was an incredible journey. And then um, was essentially introduced to Airtm who had received an investment from Stellar. And for me personally, it was a really cool opportunity to go from kind of a bottom of the tech stack, being a blockchain to then working um, at a company that was leveraging the blockchain, but, you know, had a user, you know, needed to make revenue, had a very like targeted market it was trying to compete in and try to like figure out all of those business things while still, you know, trying to do the cool tech stuff that I wanted to do. So, that's what led me to Airtm and doing strategy with them. And it's been great. Yeah.
0: Interesting. You know, you, because early in your career, you, you went to two, two different countries and you build up the experience. You know, as I mentioned earlier, I, I spent quite a bit of a time in India and then I moved out of India. What what advice would you give to listeners, you know, young uh, operators who would want to, uh, you know, build that sort of an experience, international experience. When should they look at, you know, Building that sort of international experience so that uh, they can they can leverage it later on in the career.
1: Great question, and yeah, I can't stress enough how impactful those experiences, both in the Peace Corps and in India, were to me and my personal growth. Uh, they say that your brain continues to like grow, um, I, you know until you're twenty five. And I felt I graduated at 21 and those years between 21 and 25, where I was just in completely new environments, just deeply digesting how different the world could be, but then also seeing my ability to adapt and learn really quickly. And then you start to see the sameness, even though things can be so different. And yeah, I think it just, um, like There's different types of experience that you can garner, and you can certainly go to, you know, if you want to be an accountant, you can go to accounting firm and get like a lot of that firsthand accounting knowledge. For me, I was getting some expertise around my field, but it was really just the kind of mental um, perspective like that I had to have as an individual operating in those environments and just having so many different types of challenges that I had to, um, yeah, to tackle, and I think it kind of takes the um, takes like the life vest off for you, and just throws you into the deep end, and it shows you what you're made of. And I guess I think, if nothing else, those experiences gave me a lot of confidence in myself as an operator to be able to figure it out. It doesn't have to be. Any certain way, like I can attack any type of problem because, you know, I've been in so many different situations that I, you can kind of understand. It's about the tools you use to solve the problem, not the problem itself. Um, so yeah, I would say, if you have the ability, um, you know, definitely after college, but maybe even after high school, to go out and even if it's in your home country, just like see very different types of places and get opportunities that give you a lot of personal responsibility even if it's not a fancy job if it's high ownership for you to just kind of like be a leader figure it out be a problem solver it is incredibly um beneficial to your growth that's my experience
0: but absolutely that's that's great advice um I want, I want to talk about uh atm you know how, how does atm uh able to access across 190 odd countries and you know uh, how how does it differentiate from other fintech platforms?
1: Sure. So, RTM is a digital dollar wallet. And I'll say that there's kind of two other types of products that you can p- compare it to. One, we're very similar to PayPal. You can think of us as being a disruptor to your PayPal type of um, global online, you know, account, online money account. And then on the other side, you've got your like super duper innovative crypto wallets. You know, your... Um, you know, fancy self-custody, like I'm a stable coin wallet. And AirTM tries to be kind of in the middle where um we do leverage crypto under the hood, where a USDC wallet. USDC is a global stablecoin, probably the most reputable global stable coin in the market right now. Um And we leverage blockchain on the back end, but we're very mass market focused and our use case isn't crypto. Um, Our use case is payments and also connecting individuals around the world to earning opportunities in the global dollar economy. So uh, I guess from our product standpoint, what really differentiates in terms of payment rails is that we have our own native peer-to-peer market this is just like Uber. So in places that have kind of slow payment rails and a lot of developing markets, if you wanna receive a payment from the US into your bank account in Kenya, that transaction if you're doing a bank transfer can take a long time. Even if you're using something like PayPal, it can still take a long time to process. Fees can be high. What we do is allow you to send stablecoin and then match you with a local peer who will buy that stablecoin from you on the AirTM platform and do an immediate local transfer? And this can help us shorten the speed of a cross-border payment transfer or um, payment disbursement from you know a couple hours or a couple days to like 15 minutes. And we can do it at great fees um, as we continue to like grow our marketplace. I know you have experience with marketplaces, so that's one of the things as we kind of grow our marketplace and countries, our our fees get cheaper and cheaper. So we innovated in this payment rail um, through our own peer-to-peer market. And that is kind of our secret sauce. And then tying that to our digital wallet. And then um, our kind of newer product is a marketplace for earning opportunities. And we realized that the primary reason most users were using our wallet is to cash out money from PayPal or kind of get paid. Um, in, you know, whether they're a freelancer or just an online task or solving CAPTCHAs, um, you know, this kind of earning can be significant. And so now we've built a marketplace to connect enterprises and our users so, that they're able to identify these earning opportunities and just use AirTM directly to collect the payments. So, yeah, those are some of the things that differentiate us in the market, um, either as a payment disbursement tool for an enterprise that needs to pay people all over the world. Um, a big sector for us right now is AI. Um, okay. A lot of AI training companies have, you know, you saw with ChatGPT, all of their trainers were in Kenya and so how did they pay these people and a lot of times it's smaller amounts because they're just doing like small tasks online so we've got a great solution for that um and great payment rails for the users to collect those that money
0: got it and and how does um, atm navigate the you know the complex regulatory environments across you know different countries how do you manage to navigate it
1: yeah it's definitely um an ongoing challenge because regulations are changing all the time
0: yeah
1: i think we take it um you know we have a way of kind of looking at our impact um and how meaningful we are in any market and then kind of doing risk assessment and understanding um you know kind of where we stand in terms of our activities in different markets you know there are core things that we take very seriously so we're a um, a registered money service business. We, you know, have our own BSA officer, AML compliance. We want to protect our users, we want to protect our enterprises. So that's really important. But you know, certain types of regulation around stable coins or wallets, like this is an ever-changing space right now. So um, we're very focused on giving our users, our retail users around the world self-custody wallets and basically as much autonomy and control over their money as they can. Um, People in these places oftentimes love having gold or money under their mattress. And that's you can't have that same type of autonomy in a digital environment. But with AirTM, we believe you can. And that's generally our strategy is to provide users with the tools to create their own digital accounts and hold their own digital money. And then, you know, we work with local licensed payment service providers. Um, And yeah, I'll just say our our legal team and our growth team from an organization perspective work very closely together. So we have regular meetings where our growth team is saying, you know, this is what we're doing and this is where we're going. And our legal team is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, um, this type of activity isn't something that we can support. You know, we do not directly solicit customers in most markets. Um, there's only a few markets where we we kind of really go and do that. Um, But we, you know, certainly can um, make our services available globally to users um, if they're collecting a payment from an enterprise. So uh, I think it's really important that you don't allow legal and compliance to um, be the only leader especially if you're a young company. uh, You have to take on some risk. That's just kind of like the name of the game. But especially as you start to grow and you start to have meaningful market share, it's important that they are part of your strategic conversation about what you're going to do as a company and where you're going. And that's a lesson that we've definitely learned. So maybe that's the best way to summarize it, that... Um, Legal is a partner at the strategy table for us as a company. And as we grow and expand our services, we're always thinking about how do we manage our own risk as a company and make sure we're giving our users a safe, reliable, compliant service.
0: Got it. And Lisa, you you had mentioned that. Digital currencies are being adopted by freelancers, but but when do you think you know lo- larger companies are going to adopt uh alternative payment options? Uh, because you know I've been investing into Bitcoin and Ethereum, and we always thought that it's going to be an alternative to uh mm-hmm. to to dollar. But when do you think that push from the companies is going to is going to come?
1: I think it's all about accounting at the end of the day, actually. And a lot of reservations. I think once stable coins became mainstream, the ability for large companies to adopt distributed ledgers and digital assets became a reality. Um, I think, you know, with the ETFs and all of the Bitcoin stuff, like that's definitely happening, but it's really more of a um, maybe like trade or speculation play. But I think with stable coins, it is something that you know major platforms could leverage as part of their payment stack. I think right now, the biggest tipping point has been I'm a you know, I'm a fortune five hundred company. How is my accounting team going to start you know holding stable coins on their books? How do we report this? How does this make our end of year filing like this much more difficult? versus the amount of gain we think we can have from leveraging this new technology and so i know that's maybe not like a really sexy answer but i think it's the truth there's just this kind cost benefit right now of kind of like deep organizational impact and change for how things are done and then what's going to be the benefit of it but i do think that paypal launching a stable coin this past year was a major move Um, And I think we're going to continue to see more major fintechs, like releasing their own um, digital assets and trying to provide innovative services with that. You continue to see folks like um, Visa and MasterCard embracing this technology. So I think we'll maybe see it earlier on the retail side, like seeing major companies release stablecoin prod, products for retail. But I think the real shift will be when settlements and you know um, bills payable, these things are being kind of transacted in stablecoin. A, a major company thinks about their treasury management as like, okay, I have bank accounts for my cash and I have these Stablecoin accounts for my digital assets and I kind of see them in parallel and I'm comfortable using them in parallel. When we get there, that's like the big leaks. So, but yeah, I think it's just, it's a big step for a company, especially a large one to change like accounting and treasury. That's a, you know, it's a big move.
0: Mm got it and um and this year especially you know bitcoin's price has had moved you know 150% uh, why do you think that you know the the price is now suddenly moving up especially in the last uh, couple of months
1: well uh, i think there's probably like two or three things um uh, markets overall have been ripping in q3 and q4 so i think there's a lot of um Correlation between crypto product prices and like general um, equity markets and growth stocks have been coming back and they're kind of like bundled there. So that's one thing. It's just, um, you know, it's, it's an asset, I think. uh, Two is that we have a lot of rumors around ETFs or kind of more, we'll say, like, um, main street access to Bitcoin exposure and the, you know. With a release like something like that, it just has an ability to um, make the ability to buy Bitcoin so much easier and so much more accessible to you know American households, which would hugely impact the market. So there's a lot of speculation there. And I guess my third thing is that I'll just say there's a ton going on right now with global currencies, and we know that there's been um, a lot of movement and like inflation in the us but inflation globally and a lot of printing and i think bitcoin is increasingly seen as digital gold and um you know assets are increasing in price and i think people are thinking about what to do with their cash or how to kind of like keep up with these changes and bitcoin's becoming more mainstream and so um seeing movement there
0: got it And. Um, especially, you know, I want to talk about uh, Sam Bank Freedman uh, and and FTX, you know it it really imploded in the last couple of a uh, couple of months. But uh, w- what do you think really happened and and who should be held accountable sort of? we don't have those sort of scenarios again uh, in, in the in the future?
1: <laughs> well, if I could tell you everything that really happened, I'd have a New York Times bestselling book on my hands. <laughs> um, yeah, I think. You know, scammers are going to scam. And the sad part about this is people conflating crypto, um, the technology itself with this bad behavior. We saw bad behavior. I think bad behavior in finance is like the, you know, age old story, right? Whether it's the tulip or, you know, the crypto, it doesn't really matter. Um, There was a lot of things that made it happen. But at the end of the day, you know, they created an institution and they took a lot of people's money and then they did not run that institution with the level of fiduciary care that should have been there. Um, And they thought they could just continue to ride ride a price um, appreciation wave. And that didn't happen. And they lost a ton of money for people. So. I mean, who should be held accountable? Clearly, the executives of that company. Uh, I think anybody who's, um, you know, making really those like criminal decisions uh, should be held accountable. And they are. Uh, I think there should be regulators um, and, you know, leaders. uh, But I think primarily regulators um, who are held accountable for kind of letting it go as far as it did. Is, you know, in terms of like the celebrity endorsements and stuff like that, for me, like, okay, but do I think that like, you know, whoever is celebrity X or celebrity Y is like really to blame for this type of stuff? I mean, I think they were part of the problem, but I don't expect them to be doing the due diligence, you know, on these types of companies to allow this type of behavior to continue. So I think it was a big lesson. Um, I do think we'll have higher standards for custodial institutions in the digital asset space, which is good. Um, I think consumers are going to be a little bit more um, cautious when it comes to products that promise them really high returns or just kind of see too good to be true. And as you know, somebody who really has a deep love for crypto and like what it can provide to society, I hope that more people are curious and willing to explore self-custody products and the idea of having sovereignty of your digital assets, which I think is a really radical and exciting idea for the 21st century. Um so maybe we'll get some of that too.
0: Got it. And is this is there anything which worries you in the crypto industry in the next, you know, couple of years?
1: Definitely. I mean, it's a very experimental industry and there's going to be failures, you know, and I think, um, that's scary when it comes to something like Bitcoin. I do worry that like so far Bitcoin markets have just been this like cute little, um, you know, minnows playing around that once like large institutions get involved, um, you know, I I don't know how exactly it can push the market. That scares me a little bit. If there's kind of like you know huge swings or huge sales or huge buys, um, I think the thing that scares me the most, however, is um, just overregulation. I know Elizabeth Warren in the last um, week or two in the U.S. had some really negative sentiments t- towards Bitcoin and you know, she's a woman who has definitely done some very interesting things, um, some noble things for consumer protection, but I think she's totally wrong on this issue. And it just worries me that, um, yeah, that there can be some fear mongering towards technology, and it's going to be really hurtful. And I think the US needs to be competitive. And if there is a new digital gold standard, like we need to be in on that we don't want to be the last ones to that show so um yeah i think mean, that's what scares me the most
0: got it and and how do you evaluate the potentials for for governments to create a central bank uh digital currency um do you see that potential
1: yeah you know it's an interesting question about two years ago it was either 2020 or 2021 um i had the amazing opportunity to interview. Um, I believe it's Madam Sirleaf, the former president of Liberia. Um, mm-hmm. And it was with Stellar. So it was a blockchain conference and she was one of our guests. And I got to do this interview with her. And at one point I was like, do you think, you know, CBDCs like would have a lot of value in Liberia? And she kind of just gave me this look like, you know, we have enough issues, just like managing all of the craziness we have to with our own financial infrastructure and system. And then, you know, I think for a lot of these emerging economies, like they're already starting with one hand behind their back because they're taking loans in another country's currency. And like it's so the idea of them suddenly having these like CBDCs. You know, I think what we're going to see is a few dominant countries you can probably anticipate who they are, the US, Euro, China, maybe throw in a few others, um, really competing for increased globalization of currency. Um, Or maybe it does become like a more multipolar world and the digital currencies and CBDCs just allow for greater liquidity between different currencies. And so we don't have such a You know, dollar denominated global currency market. It's actually able to be, you know, three, four major currencies that are really operating in trade settlement and this type of stuff. Um, So I think that will happen, uh, but I don't expect to see every of the 200 plus fiat currencies to be rolling out CBDCs. I think it's a non trivial amount of security and tech and learning that has to be done. And so, um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting hundred years ahead of us when it comes to, uh, national currencies and macro economies. Um, but yeah, I kind of expect there to be leaders in the CBDC space.
0: Okay. And, and how could, you know, stable coins be a solution to this? Do you think they could be, uh, uh, a solution for this?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think of stable coins as just being the commercial kind of like non-governmental version of a CBDC, right? So, I you know, in the U.S. to date, our strategy has been a stablecoin strategy. We're not really doing some type of major national CBDC initiative. They are in China. They are in, I think, Europe announced as well. Um, and in like Nigeria, they're doing it too. So... I think stable coins right now are a way to for the dollar to compete and to remain incredibly accessible to global audiences, um, which is great and important. And I think it, you know, certainly is helping in like trade settlement. Um, I think something that we're seeing now that's kind of weird is having something like Tether, which is essentially a dollar peg stablecoin that's completely disconnected from the dollar banking infrastructure. And so you have people leveraging a dollar stablecoin, maybe a company in Uruguay and a company in Brazil, you know, settling a payment with USDT. And so it's like they are using the dollar in an international sense, but it's a dollar decoupled from US banking infrastructure, which I don't really know what that means, but it's different. It's something that hasn't really existed yet. So I think stablecoins, um, they're providing important experimentation right now in countries like Argentina. They're providing an essential lifeboat for individuals who can access these assets and have some way to, you know, hold on to their savings and interest. Um, but how stablecoins compete with CBDCs, I mean, that's a big question. Um you know, will CBDCs just be like interbank money, or will they be something that only citizens of a country can hold? Or, you know, if China issues a digital RMB, is that something that I can hold in my Ethereum wallet? Like, I don't know. Um, I think, yeah, I somebody much smarter than myself would have to answer that question. But, uh, you know, I'm happy at the end of the day for humanity that we're testing many different versions of how this technology can impact our money and our economies. And hopefully through all of this experimentation, we'll land on the best solution for society.
0: Very interesting. And, um, and do you think this is the right time to start investing in cryptocurrency or should we wait it out and see if there's a crash?
1: Well, um, I think timing any market is always a bit of a fool's errand. Um, I think if people are curious in something like Bitcoin, uh, then it's great to take a, you know, dollar cost averaging approach and, you know, take an amount of funds that you feel comfortable with. Um, you know, let's say that's a thousand dollars or a thousand pounds, um, and then split that into five, you know, transactions and um it starts to give you a data point and so you do the first one did you get a good price did you not you don't know you do the second one well now you've had two prices so you can kind of decide and then suddenly you go to do your third one well is the price up is the price down like you you start to have a history of yourself and then if there is a price drop you can feel more confident and leaning in or something like that so um but is right now you know, I can't give it financial advice. I'm personally bullish on Bitcoin. I think with everything going on in the world today, um it, you know, it, I see um, I see the a lot of experimentation by governments with fiat money right now, and that makes me very curious and interested in Bitcoin as um, yeah, like a type of digital gold. So I think if that is, Something that people are feeling interested in or maybe insecure about, then they should totally check out Bitcoin. um But it's a long term play. And
0: yeah,
1: I, I'm not a supportive of you know quick turnaround short trades. <laughs>
0: okay, okay, got it. And, and uh, Lisa, you you you're a chief strategy officer, but you. You've had growth and and partnership roles before. so I wonder wonder to understand, you know what's what's a core characteristic of a, of a great growth hire, especially in a in a tech startup?
1: Yeah good question. I think um, the things that I lean on are analytical skills. I think growth um is really about looking at the business data and asking questions and sometimes even doing experiments so that you can make decisions. So just having some raw analytical skills, ability to dive into data sets is huge. I think um, then the other one is, you know, that kind of ever elusive, but incredibly important um, hustler, you know, somebody we at AirTM really celebrate an entrepreneurial culture. And I think I would take somebody with drive and curiosity and, um, you know, a bit of um, fearlessness over somebody with the perfect pedigree any day, Um, as long as they both have some analytical skills, right? And so if you can kind of like think critically, um, if you have uh, shown that you've, you know, had diverse experiences you've had ownership and you can tell me like i did this initiative i had ownership this is something that was awesome and this is what i learned from it and this was something that was a huge mistake from this experience and this is what i learned from it um and this is how i would do it again like that i think people who are just thinking critically have a that kind of hustle and entrepreneurial sense plus analytical skills and then the last one is communication I think in growth, you need to do a lot of cross-functional leadership. You need to kind of get people to buy into a vision you have, and so somebody who can communicate—that's um, a super valuable skill.
0: Got it. And and how does it become apparent when you made a you know bad growth hire? And you know uh, what? What are some of, some of the characteristics of somebody who's not a is not good at the job?
1: Yeah, I think um, for me, it's always just kind of like a culture fit. And it's pretty obvious within the first 30 days. Um, How is somebody, you know, if you say, all right, the mountain we're going to climb is this, are they kind of waiting for you to tell them how to climb it? Or are they like, you know, drawing a map and making some hypotheses about the best route to get up? And especially for growth, that's what you need. Now, if you're getting, you know your controller, like maybe you want them to take more direction or something like that. But, um, yeah, so I think it's kind of like, again, how much ownership is somebody taking? How much, um, initiative are they doing asking questions on their own? You know, like, are you, are they just kind of diving in, asking a lot of questions, trying to figure it out, you know, can they work well enough with other people? But I think typically for a growth hire, when we know it's just not going to work, it's because there's a bit of a lower energy, kind of like waiting to be told what they need to be doing, Um, maybe being kind of timid about throwing out ideas. And I think it's just not a good role fit or cultural fit for that type of position.
0: Got it. And especially when it comes to early stage startups, you know, they, they will talk about, you know, uh, product market fit uh, and founder market fit. Uh, and they also talk about, you know, the product channels fit, you know, how should, how should founders approach, you know, something like a product channel fit, especially when it comes to, you know, B2B or fintech companies, how do you, how do you look at that?
1: Oh, this is such a question. It's something that we're very in the middle of right now with air Team as well. Um, so I think that, especially in B2B, um, I think 50% of the time that you're doing like early stage sales, it's not, it's business development. It's not sales Yeah. and sales happens when you suddenly have that perfect product market fit where it's like, okay, this is the customer. There's approximately X amount of them in the world. And this is like the specific product that we're selling them. And here's specifically what their alternatives are and just go out and sell our value prop all day long to those customers that's when you like have product market fit you're building a sales team but i think you know before that your first customer may not be the same as your second customer you know they may be using your product but like maybe they kind of like it for different reasons and like okay so how many of customer a are there how many of customer b are so And you're just having to do whatever it takes to get to the sale. So I really think that like you spend the first, you know, if you're going from one to a hundred, you spend from zero to 50 doing BD and working at a much slower pace. It's kind of like that slower curve up where it's having a deep understanding of your customers, um, really listening to their needs and using that. Um, cycle to help inform your product and how to adjust it, and also how to inform your marketing and your positioning and how to like talk about yourself. A perfect example of this is we, you know, spent a year selling enterprises on every bell and whistle that our mass payout product had. And then one day, you know, we just mentioned that, oh, well, we also have a, you know, a million global users across Latin America. And people were like, wait, can you connect us to those users? And we were like, oh, is this a thing? And then that kind of became something that we understood as being a huge part of our value prop and differentiation to our enterprise clients, right? So I think nothing about the product changed. It was just how we were talking about it. And I think you just have to do so many cycles of that early on. So grow as long as you are have customers who love your product and are growing their use of it, and you can kind of continue to add more of those. Give yourself the time before you say, "Okay, here's the product market fit, and now we're ready to like industrialize this and just start selling, selling, selling." Because um, if you do that too early, you just bang your head against the wall because you don't um, you don't have anything figured out yet, and you're trying to mass produce. Mm. So that's been my experience.
0: All right, and and Lizard, do you think uh, one should diversify marketing channels, or should they focus on one channel till you know they get the x result?
1: I think uh, I'm I'm never a fan of just like a one prong strategy, but I do think you can limit it. I don't think you should feel like oh we need to be blowing up everywhere. I mm. think you need to have your growth loop even if it's just a hypothesis, right? And so your growth loop might be, we attend events, you know, we publish posts about it, and we email everybody that we meet, right? And so it's kind of like the channels that you're going after are public spaces, you know, you want to do some poll-based marketing content, like write stuff, but then you really want to build up your email newsletter. And like, that's, that's the formula you're like filling those funnels and all of those things interact. You need to have some vision for what your growth cycle is, but do you then need to be like throwing stuff up on Instagram and Twitter and like doing Google ads? No, that's not really like where you're at right now. So I advise to just be like really thoughtful and smart about how you're going to catch your fish, catch your customers and like design your growth loop and your channel strategy. But it should be the minimum viable. You don't need to go all out, like make, make it be smart.
0: Got it. I want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book?
1: Yes, this is a great question. I'm going to go with coopetition. That's just something I love in general, but I think uh, a lot of people see business as zero sum. And I think if you can find a way to make the pie bigger and find an advantage with working with anyone, you'll be very successful. So, you know, frenemies are a real thing. Uh, learn how you can make the pie bigger. And cooperation is a great book
0: for that. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. And, you know, if you could go back in time when you started your career in, in fintech, uh, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done thing differently?
1: Yeah, this is a good, good question. Um, I think I probably would have taken some type of like product level course, agile development, something. I just think having some exposure to like how the sausage is made from the product and tech side does help you think about the overall business mechanics and also Kind of informs your ability to sell because you have more confidence on like if you can do something or not. So, yeah, I did a lot of marketing. I did a lot of research. I loved having a research background when I came into fintech. But I think if I could have added something else, it would have doing like a three month, six month, like kind of product boot camp. I'm not a product person, but just to see those processes and that thinking style and kind of like how how product and tech works
0: oh, no absolutely makes sense and do you have any favorite online tools? for example gmail slack zoom
1: i know that's another good one um well i do you know use my chat gpt so i think there's just so many easy tasks like job descriptions resumes um you know having to write an awkward letter to your Enterprise clients about a change that you're making. Like you need to edit, but it just puts something on the page for you to then work off of. So that's probably my favorite one right now. And then hangouts. I love uh I love a good video call. So I don't know what I do without them.
0: Got it. Um uh, well, we'll put that in the show notes. And lisa what are the best way people can reach out to you and know more about ATM?
1: Sure. Um, so I'm on LinkedIn, Lisa Nestor, AirTM. You can email me at lisa at rtm.io. And uh, I'm also on Twitter as Nestorius828. I guess I should say X, I'm on X, Nestorius828. Got it, uh,
0: we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Aliza, um, thank you so much for taking on time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed our conversation with you.
1: Thank you, Rohit, this was awesome. I appreciate your questions.
0: Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.